Welcome to Pub Natter, hosted by Tim Ives and Justin Perry. We both moved to Rutland over 20 years ago, but our careers kept us away from home, so we don't know as much about the county as we should. So we thought, now that we're getting old and slowing down, how can we meet interesting folk and learn as much about Rutland as possible? The answer is to host a podcast, or is that a pubcast? We hope to host each podcast in a different pub in and around Rutland, so we get an excuse to visit a new pub every week or so, whilst letting interesting, mostly local people and organisations tell their stories and at the same time promoting the ales and the pubs. We have plenty to choose from in Rutland, so this project could take some time. We have spent many hours in pubs up and down the land discussing every topic you could possibly imagine. We sit on opposite sides of the political spectrum and are probably the only two friends in Rutland that didn't fall out over the Brexit referendum. Given this and our backgrounds, Tim, Royal Air Force, dental healthcare and postgraduate education, and Justin, construction industry and construction law specialist, we reckon we have got the skills to get our teeth into our subjects and build some stories for our listeners. Most episodes will start with 10 or 15 minutes with the landlord, discussing their backstory, the history of the pub and its offerings, and then a special guest with a special interest area of expertise. We hope you enjoy our chats and it encourages you to go out and explore our little county and all that it has to offer. Like the motto says, there is much in little. In this second of our Armed Forces Breakfast Club trilogy, we base ourselves in the Grain Store pub in Oakham during the December gathering, and natter with Ian Reynolds, the Armed Forces Officer for Rutland County Council, Ian Rizal, and 95-year-old John Bomber Beckett. All three are military veterans. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. So, today's episode comes to you from the Grain Store Brewery in Oakham in Rutland, as the distinction of being the biggest brewery in the smallest county in England. Uh, it's been around for almost 30 years, founded in 1994, by Tony Davis and Mike Davies. One was a former head brewer with Ruddles Brewery, which is sadly now a housing estate, and the other was a metal fabricator. They combined their skills, bought a derelict Victorian grain store next to the railway station, renovated it, lowered all of the fermenting vessels and copper and conditioning tanks into the bowels of the building, and in September 1994, they opened their doors to the public. They have 15 barrel brew capacity and they can barrels, uh, brew 60 barrels a week. And their first uh, uh, production was cooking bitter, which they still do, and 1050, which they also still do. And here we are almost 30 years later and they're going from strength to strength, um, now owned by one of the original uh, founder's sons and his business part- partner. We will be back one day to do a podcast from and about the brain store, but for now we're going to start talking to people from the Armed Forces Veterans Breakfast Club. So we're in the grain store. It's the 2nd of December 
and it's busy. We've got the Christmas decorations up. The grain store kindly let us, uh, the Armed Forces Breakfast Club, host this and give huge discounts for the food as well. And it's a brilliant facility. And on my left is um, Justin Perry, my co-host. Morning. And on my right is Ian Reynolds, my good friend. And also, he's, this guy is heavily involved um, with the armed forces in Rutland. So I'll get him to introduce his title. Uh, good morning. Um, my title is um, the rather odd title of armed forces officer for Rutland County Council. And the officer bit sometimes confuses people in the military sense. It, it's not that sort of officer. But basically, my, my role is to do uh, or be involved in all the armed forces related business on behalf of Rutland County Council, wow. including a lot of stuff with veterans. Um, That's a huge sort of remit. It, well, it, I mean, because Rutland's got, um, for a small county, it's got quite a lot of military presence, particularly with the resident army battalions on, on two barracks here. So that's one side of the job. And as I say, it, it, the other side is the broader armed forces community. So families, veterans, reservists. Um, it, it, Rutland is a very... The, the Lord Lieutenant often describes it as a military county because it has such a military flavour to the, to the um, population. Sure. Do so, all councils have somebody performing that role, or is that unique to Rutland? It, it's not unique, but not all of them have them, and in fact most aren't full-time. I'm, I'm in a, because of the, you know, the fact that there's such a large armed forces community here, I, I'm glad to I'm employed full-time, but uh, I'm not... I'm not uh, I'm not the only full-time one in the country, but definitely in the minority, quite a small minority. Some people have, some, someone who maybe works in HR or housing who does, who looks at the armed forces stuff one day a week. That's what I find with some other local authorities, as opposed to every day of the week. Oh, that's good. So talk us through um, a typical day in the life of Ian Reynolds. It from a working capacity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, there is a bit of a routine to the start of the day because part of the job, though I'm not a, I'm not a social worker, I don't do casework, I'm very much involved in taking people who may, in particularly for the veterans community, people who may have a, an issue or a problem that they want some help with and putting them in touch with the right people. Um, because what I should have said is up until last year, I, I served for 32 years in the Royal Air Force. So I'm in the job because I know a lot about the armed forces. I'm not in the job because I'm a housing officer or a, or a social worker or anything like that. Presumably, that job always goes to ex-military people. Uh, it's, I'm only the second to have done it in Rutland. It was only formed as a job about maybe five, six years ago. My predecessor did it, I think, for four years, four, four and a half years. And she wasn't, but she was a spouse of a veteran right. so they, they want somebody from what you know as we say the armed forces community because everybody has a different you know my experience was different to hers but both are still valid i'm glad you said spouse and not wife of <laughs> we yeah, as you know we tried to move away from something and, and a lot of spouses aren't wives they're, they're husbands they're men so um, what are the what are the typical issues that you have to deal with okay so um this is probably an opportune moment to talk about the Armed Forces Covenant, which is, has been around now for more than a decade, probably about 12 years. 
and it started off as what was called a promise from the nation to those who have served and those who were deemed to have given the most, so people who become injured or the breed. It changed, it, it, it was kind of a nice to have in the context of it wasn't legally binding until last year, November, so it's a year now, 22nd of November, 2022, it became legally binding. It's still not hugely prescriptive, but it does put an onus on government bodies such as local authorities and the NHS and other bodies to ensure that service people and the wider community are not disadvantaged. People get confused um, because they sometimes think it's about giving an advantage to the ex-service people that are currently serving. It's not about advantage, it's ensuring they're not disadvantaged. So with that in mind, the things that come under the law are housing, education and health, um, primarily, and they're the things. So what I get here more than anything, I would say, is probably, well, in August, September, it's about schools and school places, but for most of the time across the year, it's about housing. And it's uh, a little bit of a sad indictment on how well we prepare our service people for leaving the service that they don't understand enough about, about the challenges of housing, whether it's social housing, rent, private rental market. There's a lot of people who move from a married quarter after 20 or 30 years and kind of think they're going to move straight into social housing doesn't work that simply. Um, so I, d I unpick, with the help of the housing officers, because I sit in the middle, and I help them to unpick you know, some of those challenges. How do you differentiate between giving somebody an advantage and uh, ensuring that they don't have a disadvantage? That sounds quite grey. <laughs> it, it is very grey. Um, and that's what I mean. The, the, unfortunately, the law is not prescriptive enough for me to be able to say, you know, there's a line and here is where the line is. Um, but an example is, uh, let, let's use a housing example. So if you're a resident of Rutland and you've lived here for a number of years and you want to go on the social housing register, one of the first things they'll check is your local eligibility. Have you lived here for more than two years? And that allows you to go on the roster. If you're just leaving the army and you've not been in control of where you've lived for any of your adult life, because the army tells you where you live, and you decide you want to come back to Rutland, maybe you grew up here, and you want to settle here, when you put that application in, under the, how it used to be would be that you were not treated as local. Oh no, you don't have that local advantage of having lived here for at least two years. So all they've done under the legislation is waivered that, so that you don't go in the, into the waiting list higher or lower than anybody else, you just go in at the same level, as if you were local. So they've just taken away the disadvantage of the fact that you've had no choice in where you've lived for the last 20 years. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. About time. Yes. Yeah. But there are some people who think that they should come in higher up the list, but that's not how it works. <laughs> wow. So, other issues? So housing? Um, you said health? Health, health is an interesting one because Rutland combines with Leicestershire and... Um, and Leicester, LLR, as a region to do. So I tend not to get involved so much with individuals in, that, in the health sphere, but more about data and information. So another example of that is uh, we recently, with the, with the move of a, a battalion over the summer, moved from Cyprus to Calia, back to uh, Rutland, back to Kendry Barracks, and uh, we did a survey about health needs 
um, for families in particular, but also serving soldiers, to understand um, and, and inform the local health um, professionals some of the, you know, whether there was a high level of any particular ailment or concerns or anything like that. It was quite broad, but it was quite useful in the context of it. It just gave people a footing that, but that actually they could sort of understand what changes might be required within a small local area in terms of the local doctor's practices. Dentistry is always a big issue. Um, the swarm of people that were going to come in looking for NHS dentists, but as we know, they're very few and far between nowadays. So we did the so it's something like that. So that was less about an individual, much more about um, the general health picture changing in that particular part of Rutland. And it's proved useful. But I'm not again, I'm no health expert, so I, I help them to do that because I can get in with the welfare teams and, and get the information they need. But then I don't pretend that I know what to do with the information. That's why we have health professionals to, to do that. So once you leave the forces. Do, obviously, when you're in the forces, everything is dealt with within yep. the service, health, dentistry, etc. Once you leave, is that just gone overnight? Yes. And interestingly, literally on Tuesday of this week, I was at a LLR health conference, a wellbeing conference, really. Um, again, not as a health expert, but as an armed force, with my armed forces hat on. And I, I could see the penny drop with some people when I explained that you might have a 55-year-old man who left the armed forces a year ago who has never registered with a civilian doctor or dentist. And therefore, it's new to him, and you know, depending on who that individual is, they may struggle with some of the process. And it suddenly made them realise, because that's what, it, that's what happens. You never have to go seeking a doctor or a dentist. You always register with the, the station senior medical officer or the senior dentist. And that sort of happens automatically for you every time you move for 30-odd years. So that's just an example. That actually, it's not that they're, people are difficult or that they, you know, they're not very clever and they don't know how. It's just they've gone through half a century of their life without yeah. ever having to do it. So it's, 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 it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes. That was one of the things that really struck me about our conversation with Derek yesterday. He, he said, you come out of the forces and you're almost like a 16-year-old school leaver. But because you don't look like a 16-year-old school leaver, people aren't giving yeah, you a little bit of slack. No, you're spot on. You know, when they're a 16-year-old, you think, oh, how would they know? They'll give you some help. But you're a 55-year-old man, and you don't know how to register for a dentist, or yeah. and people just are not going to be so sympathetic, I guess. I, w I would say that having been through that process myself, there is help that you do get because you can go through what we call resettlement training yeah. where you do have um, interviews and um, with various experts but I guess that opportunity is not always available to certain people well the, I, I'm quite an quite a big fan of the resettlement process that the, the, arm, the MOD gives to service people with one major floor in my opinion and, and, and one of the other sides of my job is I do sit on a couple of advisory boards with the MOD as, as a armed forces representative from the community um, and that floor is that too much of that process is voluntary there is a small element of it that's mandated you go and do your two-day course and, but then some of the things about managing your money managing health housing as I've said these are all voluntary courses they don't make people do them now, everybody's a grown-up and arguing, well, why should you make them do? 
But if they don't, then they and quite often they don't because you know, in, in many cases they're too proud to be told how to manage their budget or you know how how they're going to register for a dentist. As Tim says, the information's absolutely there, and there are all sorts of ways of getting at it. But sometimes people just don't, through their own choice. And and there are, I, I am aware of people that have come back, like from the Gulf, yeah. and they've got a couple of weeks, and then they're leaving the service. So you just haven't got the time to yeah. fit that in as well. Yeah. But going back to your role, it it sounds to me like it's on a lot of levels, because it, it, you're you're dealing with the individual. Yep. And you're also dealing with policy as well. So I should imagine there's a lot of networking involved so, at higher levels. So three weeks ago, I, in, within the space of 24 hours, was talking to a government minister and talking to a, an elderly veteran in need. And the job spans the complete, um, complete spectrum. Um, you know, at the, at the sort of top of that, at the political level, Part of my job is to make sure that Rutland County Council and others understand the, the legislation and therefore comply with it. Um, engagement with the MOD is about informing them sort of a, sometimes about the ground truth a little bit. Don't get me wrong, I'm not some, I, I go to conferences and I, and I sit on a couple of committees. And here it's Saturday morning, yeah. you're giving up your own time to come along to the Armed Forces Breakfast Club. Yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, on this, for, on the actual club itself? Well, I mean, two aspects to it. Firstly, the idea, and I know you've looked at the bigger... The, the idea is a fantastic idea, uh, very clever, um, to bring people from all sorts of backgrounds, service backgrounds, um, into this sort of environment. Um, and... You know, it really works here in Rutland. You know, sometimes there are 100 people in this pub. Yeah. I don't, I, looking around me today, this that you know we're not we're certainly probably 70 old. Um, so it's very popular, and part of that reason is that it it's just kind of safe place um, in the context that people can come along, they can talk about their, their experiences if they want to. The banter is perhaps closer to the line and maybe, maybe you, you know they see in other aspects of their life they sort of could go back to the to uh, in some of those service some of their service experiences in that way but ultimately it's just about comradeship i know there are people who in their normal daily lives are quite lonely sometimes quite isolated rutland is a rural community you know we, we only we're sitting in a town here in oakland but, but it's quite a rural community throughout most of the county and this is a great opportunity for people to get together. Um, and I know, because I get feedback from it, that people really value it. Really do value it. Fantastic. That was an education, wasn't it, Justin? It was. I'd yeah. say I didn't realise that councils actually had a, a dedicated um, arm, if you like, that deals right. with uh, forces serving and, and vets. Brilliant. So that was news to me. Ian, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. That welcome. was great. Thank you. So, we're now um, sat with Ian Rizel on our right. Um, Ian regularly comes to the Armed Forces Breakfast Clubs. Um, so, we're going to get a little bit of background on Ian, first of all. So, tell us about um, what you were doing in the Army and what you're do currently doing now. 
Yeah, firstly, um, good morning to both of you, really. So my, my career started very soon after school. So um, I did two years of sixth form and then joined the army in 1983. Um, and, and the intention really for me was to go and see the world. That was what it was in those days, an opportunity mm -hmm. just to go off. Um, so I joined in 1983 um, the Royal Army Medical Corps. So that was probably... Um, probably came around because I did a little bit of St John Ambulance as a child and so on. Um, so joined the Corps, um, trained at Keogh Barracks and Aldershot, uh, and very quickly... Sorry to hear that. Yeah, someone's <laughs> got to go there, someone's got to go there. Um, but very quickly then got posted out to Germany, BOR at the time, British Army of the Rhine, um, and spent my first four and a half years um, in five-armed field ambulance, um, part of UK, one UK armoured div at the time, thousands of us out there um, and, and it was the experience I'd, I'd yearned for I suppose, you know, you go abroad um, you're in a different culture I learned German very quickly Well, well um, done. And, and mostly because you know, you either sat in the barracks and you know, Little England or you said actually I'm here I'm going to go and have a look at it all, see what that does so that was really good and during that first four and a half years I was able to do a ton of training but also then got the deployments to Northern Ireland and other places which were probably what we all joined to do but hope you're not going to do so we did you know did some of that as well um and then a career that <clears throat> spanned 37 years in the army so it started in germany at five armed foot ambulance my soldier career finished um as the regiment sergeant major of the same unit that had morphed into five general support medical regiment um i deployed in operations with them to the gulf as the rsm um, and then commissioned went to sandhurst um and done a ton of stuff in between. So 37 year career in the military. My penultimate job was the OC of the Military Work and Dog Squadron in Rutland. Mm. Um, that was in 2012, uh, so 2014. Um, so the family came here. We'd had, as you can imagine, dozens of houses and dozens of schools and all of that stuff. When we got here, my son was still in primary school, but in that first three years of primary school, he'd been to four schools. So we landed here and that was enough. Um, so settled in Rutland, been here since 2012. Um, I left the military uh, in 2015, went straight into the NHS and, and I've been working um, in the NHS now. I'm a, a head of primary care for a commissioning support unit, um, working for the NHS. I've been doing that ever since. Um, wow, that's a hell of yeah. a career. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. So um, <laughs> one of your roles here is to bring along um, Bomber, who we'll chat with in a, in a moment. That, that's, so do you bring, bring him every week? Every, every month, sorry. Every, every month. So um, John, uh, and this is, the, this is the extraordinary part about the veteran community in Rutland, but I guess globally as well, is that you often live next door to people or very close to people that you had no idea served. So John lives um, 100 metres from where I live on the same street. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, I heard about him from a friend and he said, oh, you know, John's uh, living down the street, he'd be keen to get involved. So, uh, you know, is it my job to bring him? No, absolutely not. But the, the point is, he's a veteran, he, he, he served the same as me, you know, he did national service. Um, so he's no different to me and it's, it's a, a joy to bring him here um, and let him um, remain part of the veteran community he's always been part of. You know, is it is it a job? No, um, it's an honour, frankly. You know, he's 95 years old, 96 years old, uh, and bringing him to this 
um, listening to his stories. Um, we've all got them, you know, sure, veterans yeah. all have stories. It's extraordinary, yeah. So what are your thoughts on the Armed Forces Breakfast Club itself as, a, as an establishment? It does two things. It um, <clears throat> keeps the community together, but it also saves lives, which most people say that's emotional, that's tosh. The truth is, if, if you look at the majority of um, veterans who become isolated, it's because they're not part of the community anymore uh, and they don't feel that they are, they don't feel that they belong, sure. um, or they don't know about breakfast clubs. So breakfast clubs give people the chance to come together. You don't know the people, that doesn't matter. You also, therefore, you do know them. You talk the same language and, and it saves lives. So it stops people from being completely isolated um, and, and doing that one thing that we none of us want them to do. Um, so, you know, whether they're 18 years old and they've served for a couple of days or a couple of months, or they're 96, 101, that's irrelevant. They're all veterans and the club, um, which Mark and Tracy set up in Rutland, uh, they'll, they'll probably be slightly embarrassed about this, but it's saving lives in Rutland. Sure. I, 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 we can completely get that now, don't we? Yes, yeah, so, so I, I didn't know anything about it. I've never served. Um, I didn't know anything about it until yesterday when we spoke to Derek and um, and then it came across loud and clear just how difficult it can be when you come out of an institution that you've been in for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. I, I kind of get it having, having been in the Air Force, but understanding the importance of community but what really struck me when I started coming here was the language it's it's like walking back into the the mess mm. or the or the naffy mm. it's the same conversations that you had when you were in the military and I guess that's what really strikes people if they are a little bit lonely it's like they're like um, Derek said yesterday it's like they're coming home it's um the, the phrase is used a lot these days but it's a safe space Mm. Um, where where you can talk about what you used to do, um, where you don't have to explain what a posting was or what an assignment was, or you know going on leave. Those that language, that you know very focused language around military service um, and what it means. Uh, and you, you come in and talk, and, and very quickly people flick back to when they when they served. Yeah. And they have that, there's a comfort in that, you know, and without getting too emotional about it, um, it is a safe space. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, brilliant. That was really interesting. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, and we're going to, in a sec, have a chat with a 95-year-old veteran. Thank you. It's a real Thank pleasure. You. So we're with um, John Bomber Beckett. <laughs> As they call him. Hello. Um, I was born in 1928. 1928. And uh, I joined the Air Force in, when I was 18 as uh, National Service. And before that, I joined up from living in Hampton Hill in the borough of Twickenham. And my parents managed an undertaker's shop, of which we had three rest chapels down below. <laughs> one of which we used as an aero shelter. Well, one night, Jerry came over and he dropped two landmines on parachutes. One landed in the next street, blew the whole street down. And then we went out to see what had happened because all the doors and windows had been blown in. Little did we know, the other one was coming down on this parachute. 
and it got caught in a pollarded tree. Blimey. And it never went off. So I'm lucky to be here. Blimey. Wow. Where, where was that? In the borough of Twickenham. In Twickenham. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's not a million miles from my stamping ground. I was from Oxbridge. How oh, were you? Yeah. Anyway. I, I just, I'm just going to stop you there a sec because I want, just want to explain. There'll be people listening that won't know what national service was. Um, you might find that a bit bizarre, but it's not been around for a long time. So do you want to explain national service? Well, national service was you were conscripted when you were 18 and you normally did two years and then you got discharged. And, and you had to do that? Sorry, yes, you did. Yeah. Well, anyway, I joined up at the famous Padgate in the RAF and... Uh, there was an old saying there, you died in the waiting rooms, waiting to be assessed. Anyway, they said to me, what would you like to be? So I said, I'd like to be a radar mechanic. So they said, So well, you had a choice? No, not really. So, <laughs> they, so they said, well, you can't be a radar mechanic, but you could be an electrician. Mind you. I was studying to, to be an accountant, so it was a bit irrelevant. Wow. Well. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, after I left Padgate, I, I went to Melksham in Wiltshire to do my basic training, square bashing. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, what Yatesbury's got the biggest square I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, we did, I think, I don't know, six or eight weeks square bashing. Yeah. And after that, I was transferred to Melksham to do my electrical training, which I did. And, uh, and then... How, how long was that for? I can't remember. Sorry, so can, can I just rewind a second? Because to the uninitiated, what is square bashing? <laughs> it was a drill, marching. Marching around a square. Yeah. <laughs> Getting shouted at. For hours. Yeah. For hours yeah. And the other, the other thing you had was... Uh, um, it was known as domestic night, but we knew it was something rather ruder than that, <laughs> which uh, which I won't repeat. But um, you had to have all your kit all laid out and certain yeah. order, you know. It's quite ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, having done this square bashing, I went to Melksham to do my electrical training, and after that, I left there and was posted to Tangier on the south coast. Oh, Tangier, which was a, yeah. Which was a former Battle of Britain yeah, station. Yeah, I know Tangier. My wife's uncle was based in Tangier. Spitfires. Yeah. yeah. And anyway, um, while I was there, uh, King George VI was going to review the fleet in the Spithead. And we had these visiting squadrons coming down from East Anglia. And it was, the snow was so deep... We had to shovel the runways clear to get them down. We never did get them up. And we never did get them up. So from there, um, they, they said to me, where do you want to be posted? So I said, Sussex, Surrey and Middlesex. And they promptly posted me on an overseas draft. <laughs> like they do. <laughs> and I went to, went to Burton Wood, uh, which was an ex-American base. And when I told my mother that the toilets were all in a long line with no petition, she was horrified. She said, I'm going to write to the commanding officer. I said, don't you dare. <laughs> anyway, 
we eventually got posted to originally, originally on an India draft, and we went out on a troop ship called the Dilwara. Anyway, we to left. India. We left Southampton. Bound, we thought bound for India, but eventually we turned up in Ceylon or Sri Lanka, as it now is. Wow. And uh, we landed there, and the first night we went to a camp called Nagombo, and the noise from the insects and the <laughs> things was quite astonishing. Yeah, a bit different to UK. Yeah. And then when I was there, we, you know, I did a certain amount of work, and eventually again I got posted to Singapore, again on another troop ship. And when I got to Singapore, we were posted to a place up the Paoliba Road, um, and it was an ex-Japanese brothel. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it was pretty primitive, pretty primitive. <laughs> And we had a few few months there, and then I got then I got posted to Salita, and my job there was to wind transformers for the radar stations, all right, and that sort of stuff. And uh, so that's where I completed more more or less my national service, and then we came back up back on a troop another troop ship, the Devonshire, mm -hmm. and it took a took a month to get out there and back, you know. Well, yeah. And you packed uh, a lot into two years. Pardon? You packed a lot into two years. Oh, yeah. You, what's interesting there is not one of those places that you mentioned has been a, a place where a British serviceman would go to for a very long time. So, um, and then what did, you, um, what did you do in service in, in your um, civilian life? I'm an accountant. So you went back to be doing accountancy. Yeah. You, d you didn't fancy carrying on in, in electronics. Well, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's funny. I, know, I know when I went for a trade test, I think we got an extra. We used to get paid four shillings a day, and if you got, I, I think I got to the highest rank of AC one. I got an extra six months a day, <laughs> and that was it. Oh dear. So, so you you had a life of accountancy in civilian life. Yes. And um, and now um, you come along to the Armed Forces Breakfast Clubs. Yes. Um, regularly. Yes. Um, do you enjoy that? I love it. Yes. Brilliant. So when did you when did you start coming to these? Well, it's Ian Ian Rizal who got me into it mm -hmm. about. Uh, about a year ago, I think. Okay. So, did you have did you have any ties with um, military life um, up until the, these breakfast clubs? Were you were you a member? Not really. Of no. Any associations? No. 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 So that, that's pretty amazing. That at the age of ninety four. Ninety five. Yeah, but uh, so at age of ninety four, you suddenly started coming along again. Yeah. To. Yeah. Wow. I've made a lot of friends. Yeah. A lot of friends. Yeah. I expect you look forward to it. I do. Yeah. So, how did you adjust to from the excitement of travelling the world on troop ships to being an accountant? I've done quite a lot. Of, I've done. I've walked hundreds of miles. Yes. I used to be a volunteer national park ranger. Oh. And, uh, okay. To, uh, and I enjoyed that up in Derbyshire, which I enjoyed very much. <laughs> that that would explain why you're still so sprightly. I think the fact that you've done a lot of walking. Oh yes, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you don't have the appearance of a typical accountant. 
Or, or of a 95-year-old, to be <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, I've had a good life. And uh, my wife produced triplets. I've got triplet children. Oh, fantastic. Blimey. And they're 65 now. Yeah. And uh, one of my daughters always wanted to... She, she was born, and they said, you've got two girls and a boy. And the first little girl's been christened because she's not expected to live. She was £3.12. Oh, that's wow. very light. Anyway, she survived, always wanted to be a nurse, and she qualified as a SRN eventually and went back to Nottingham to start to specialise in dermatology. Anyway, about, I don't know, five years ago, she got the OB in the Queen's Honours List wow. for work in ex, uh, children's eczema. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Can we need to give her a big shout-out. What's her name? You, you can see all the details. Her name's Sandra Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. You must be very proud. Sandra Lawton, OBE. Yeah. She's yeah. retired now from the NHS. And uh, they're, in fact, they're living on a boat in Scotland. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. So, wow. It's, it's been an honour chatting with you yeah, um, it's been a real pr privilege yeah thank you thank you for giving I, us your time today I don't know whether it makes sense but uh, it oh, is, absolutely uh, makes sense um, it's brilliant um, thank you very much and I know people are listening to it are gonna absolutely love listening to your story mm. thank you very much for your time thank you cheers Bob We hope you enjoyed listening to this natter in the Grain Store pub. Do not miss the next episode, which was recorded on the same day in December. We natter with Tracy and Mark Taylor and Helen Cullinan. Mark is a military veteran and Tracy is his wife. Together they started what is now the thriving Rutland branch of the Armed Forces Breakfast Club. Our final natter in this trilogy of episodes features a regular attender of the breakfasts, Helen Cullinan who is an engagement support officer for Loros. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. So, that's a wrap. And thank you for listening to our latest pub natter. If you visit timothyives.com forward slash pub natter, you will find photos, links and more information about each episode. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please subscribe to ensure you don't miss a pub or one of our amazing guests. The Pub Natter theme tune is by Tom Arnold. That was a Pub Natter broadcast.